We've got another treat for you this week, dear listeners. The great Michael Brendan Doherty, senior writer at National Review Online, joins us to talk about nationalism, history, education, and the culture wars. We start the discussion by chewing over Michael's most recent book, My Father Left Me Ireland, a really tremendous memoir and rumination on history, meaning, and culture. Then, in the second, members-only half of the discussion, we go further afield. Do white Americans have a distinct identity? Is Islam the religion of the future? And are the right-wing governments in Poland and Hungary harbingers of the future, or just the last defenses before victorious globalizing cosmopolitanism? To get access to members-only episodes, as well as our exclusive Friday essays, please go to wisdomofcrowds.live slash subscribe and become a member. We think you'll really enjoy this episode. Thanks for listening. I'll just start screaming. <laughs> well, when you do, it'll, I mean, it'll be, it'll be great because you'll get that digital distortion and it'll, uh, it'll make it sound even more, <laughs> more impressive. <laughs> Um, we're rolling already. Uh, I don't sure. know. You know, we, we, we don't, we don't really do sort of stuff, uh, like any, any intro sort of stuff though. However, we will do like a little bit of pre-roll here because we're probably going to cut this into like a first part and a second part, but, yeah. um, you know, that just sort of happens naturally. So, so. we'll say all the nice things about you in our <laughs> recorded thing that we do about your greatness. Yeah. But, uh, you know, again, uh, I, I've, I've already said this to you, uh, beforehand and Shadi and I were actually just talking about it before you popped on uh your uh your book which is now how old Michael is it is it two years I think it's two years a two little years. over two years yeah I, I I I had as I mentioned to you uh offline I had read it um very quickly and cursorily when we had you on at the American Interest uh you know to provide notes to Richard who was doing the interview um and uh i just you know since we when you were having you on I, I i took the time to give it like a proper read this time and and my god what a great book just really really wow. excellent and shoddy i mean you know we were just talking about it he also <laughs> read it ahead of this and it's just it's it's really really just wonderful stuff yeah so i mean we i think the books of guests are sort of like children you love all of them but you love some more than others and I think um, as as our latest guest on the podcast, I know, I mean, I have to say, I, um, I, I was texting with Demir earlier and I was like, damn, I think I even used the word gorgeous to describe the book. And of course, the writing is just um, at a different level. And it also, it almost made me think that I wanted to, like, I want to, I wish I could write something like that, but um <laughs> Holy shit, guys! It's, it's like <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, I you know, again, like it's 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 uh, it's not just buttering up uh, guests like that. I, I really think it's a book that that um, that deserves repeat readings. I mean, that's you know, this was my first like proper reading, but really, I, I think it's a book I will return to. And I mean, I, I think it's a it's a good place to sort of even start talking about it because I, I I I think that uh, there's a lot in there that actually still abrades on the current moment in a lot of ways and i don't know sure. maybe maybe it's a it's a not a bad way to sort of start thinking about this is what struck me um among the many things about the book and it's a book about ireland it's a book about your relationship with your father it's a book about modernity and it's a book about meaning um and identity and and it's it's the 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 thing that that jumped out at me on this reading uh is the sense of the lack of meaning that our modern sort of um, existence affords us. Uh, <laughs> basically, it's it's how how modern meaning is just it's it's missing for all of us in a lot of ways. Um, you know, having grown up in the uh, the nineties as well, I mean, I it it it, it feels um, very relevant and it's striking as well. You know, not really knowing much about modern Ireland. Uh, the extent to which you know you, you're also pointing to the fact that how that's playing out in the in sort of the modern Irish context, but what do you what do you think about um, now looking back at the book and and looking at the kind of stuff that's going on today? Like, how much do you think meaning and a crisis of meaning is behind a lot of this stuff? I mean, I think it's I think it's huge. Um, you know, it's it's funny. Like, the book is really short, right? So I wrote this book. My father left me Ireland. And I forget how long it is, but it's it's a pretty short book. Like you could read it in an afternoon, <laughs> and like I, I I take all your compliments, and I don't want to brag, but like I worked really hard on it, and I took a while to write it, 
and it was it's almost like a condensed view of everything I have to say. <laughs> it's like it's almost like I don't have to say anything after I wrote wrote this book. Um like I think eagle-eyed readers would pick up like I'm I'm interacting with Tanihisi Coates, I'm interacting with Francis Fukuyama, um I'm engaging in an argument with you know basically Ireland's leadership class but through them you know basically the entire western elite um you know and it's a comment on the trump era too and that's it sound that sounds like it should be a crazy unreadable mess um i don't think it turned out that way and it was i think it's huge because i had i realized that there was this connection between I don't know, the the political and the personal at at a really deep level that um the things i was experiencing personally as a crisis of meaning were shaped by the political atmosphere of the time right so i talk about like being raised in the 90s and how there was a kind of like our parents our parents who were, I think, very aware of their parents and the enormities of the 20th century, it was like they were trying to liberate us uh, from all of the horror uh, that could afflict the world. And they did it by just telling us, like, do whatever you want. Whatever you want to do, that's great. And it'll work out. And um, I think with like rising prosperity in the nineties and the, the, the falling of the Berlin wall. I, I really think that felt somehow credible. Um, and then after 2001, maybe after 2008, maybe after you didn't get the job you wanted out of college or the life you thought you would get, it stopped seeming credible at all. And then there's like this this desperate search for alternatives and i think that's a little bit of what we're seeing in politics in the west um you know and i, I don't know if it's as much like francis fukuyama's book ends on this idea that like we're going to be so bored at the end of history that we're going to start it up again and i don't know if it's boredom but mm. it's certainly dissatisfaction and and that i i wanted to get at and yeah i it, i was able to just tell this story in a very like it's a kind of primordial story of here's an image of home here's an image of like losing it or leaving it in some way and then here's the story of reconciliation and coming back and finding uh, a sense of home or place in the world again and like coming back to your roots so it's like and and yeah that's that's the book yeah, I mean, so you mentioned the 90s, and um, Demir's a little bit older than, than I am, but I was seven, I guess, when the 90s started, <laughs> and if um, if my addition is correct, I would have been 17 when it ended. Um, and it's interesting that, I mean, I, obviously I have vivid memories, especially in the, in the second half of the 90s, but th there's something really evocative about your description of growing up in this sort of interim period um, in some ways, it, we look back and it's a cultural wasteland in a way, and it, there's something sort of petty and silly and shallow about the 90s as a decade. On the other hand, you talk very vividly about how you really did feel that the world was open to you. Mm, and I think yeah. that you capture this sense of being young, yeah, which I think many of us, you know, long for and look back at with with fondness that feeling that you could sort of wake up in the morning and you didn't know what would happen and you felt quite literally that any number of things could happen over the course of 24 hours or so um and um you have a wonderful but the dark side is very much there and you have a wonderful um little passage and i'll just quote it here for our dear listeners it's on page 68 if you guys, after you buy the book, obviously want to, you know, follow along. Um, you say, and you're here, you're talking to your father, 
So you tell them, on the whole, your generation successfully minimized its own risk of becoming domestic tyrants, but they had done so by handing us over to ourselves, and many of us discovered the tyrant within. So here you're obviously getting at this, this false promise of unlimited freedom and unlimited choice, and we thought that would liberate us, and you talk about this idea of liberation and how we basically became a generation of powerless narcissists, in your words. Um, so, I, I, you know, and I'm thinking, and, and just to kind of, I think, draw it more to where we are today, I don't have kids. <laughs> you had a child, I guess, a couple, a couple years ago, and that figures prominently um, in towards the end of your book. Um, but... It gets into this question of public education and the broader culture around us. And when you have kids, you care about that more and you're paying more attention to schools. And that's why I think for some of us, we thought we we think of education in America as being a kind of technocratic sphere, that it's about helping people get better test scores, giving them the tools to succeed in modern society. But when you're thinking about fathers and sons, as you do in your book, you're obviously much more invested in the question of how the broader culture shapes your children. Um, and maybe we can kind of take, you've been writing about, I don't want to jump to critical race theory right away, but you do, you have written several columns yeah. about critical race theory um, recently. But maybe just could you reflect on on maybe the book's broader themes about how culture shapes young people and and how we should be thinking about that now, especially for those of us who don't have kids and we're trying to understand what the mindset is a little bit more. Oh, yeah. So like the book's genesis, right, is that um, my wife became pregnant. This is, you know, over seven, like seven years ago now. And um, I grew up in a fatherless home. Uh, you know, my, my mother and father met in London, kind of had a summer love affair of which I was the result. <laughs> hmm. Uh, and she went back to America and he went back to Ireland and, um, he married and started a family and my mother lived the life of kind of like 1980s, nineties, single working mother. Um, so when my wife became pregnant, it's sort of like, okay, I have this, uh, normal for all, I think all new fathers, um, awareness and sense like, oh, I'm going to be a father. What kind of father am I going to be? What am I going to give to my children? And I think a lot of people think, what am I going to do differently than my own father did? And I kind of had this stranger, uh, almost blank slate to work from. Uh, and I suddenly found myself like almost in a mania. I remembered, you know, um, man, in my very early years, I remember my, my mother was just like into all this Irish stuff. Like she was taking me to these, uh, language getaways where you would like go to, uh, a camp in upstate New York and try to like only speak Irish with other Irish speakers for, um, an entire weekend or week. I remember, you know, she took me over there. She would sing these kind of songs that are historical ballads or rebel songs, things like that. We hung out with a lot of like emigrants that were kind of washing up in the 1980s because Ireland's economy sucked. So a lot of people were coming over to New York legally and illegally. Hmm. And I remember it kind of fading away. And then all of a sudden I thought like, oh, that's kind of what I want to do though. That's kind of what I want to give. So I threw myself into all these history books. I kind of relearned all these ballads. I started studying the Irish language. Um, and I wasn't, you know, I almost couldn't explain it to myself. And I had this lunch with my half sister, my Irish half sisters. And they said, oh, you know, dad said, you're going to get into the roots. Um, meaning like the Irish stuff. And I realized and at this time that I was doing this, Ireland itself was kind of going through a series of centennial celebrations of its own history or 
commemorations and um, remembrances. And I found I hated the like terms on which they were trying to uh, do these centennials. Like I thought they were really, you know, narrow-minded and present focused and like, you know, they're like trying to squeeze modern ideas about diversity and openness to immigration or something from like a revolution a hundred years earlier that was about political independence and cultural separation. Um, and mm. um, so anyway, I just became furious, but then I, I kind of um, fell in love with this generation of revolutionaries and this this political movement which like in a sense what what made me love it was not just that it had some historical connection to me but there's something ridiculous about irish nationalism like like it, it considered strictly as like a geo strategic thing um like the idea of uh a country that's been was totally defined by its failures and inability to modernize and the backwardness of its rural culture or whatever the idea of claiming that as actually like a glorious inheritance and asserting itself on the world stage is like a kind of romantic madness that and daring that I felt was like absolutely electrifying to me. It was sort of like what I needed to take on this burden of fatherhood, right? Mm -hmm. Like you needed, you need some kind of fortification, some kind of spine, the balls to do something that has, you know, tremendous risks, right? In, in a way, like it's obviously the most normal thing in the world to do. But yeah. it is also like a risky, venturous thing to do. And, you know, the values that these men had were suddenly values that I wanted. And they were not the values I was taught in childhood, right? Like uh, Patrick Pierce, one of these revolutionaries, he founded a school, St. Enda's, outside of uh, Dublin. And it was like a nationalist school for young children and they they taught classes in irish played irish games um and you know it was like this process of recovery right like the schools that had, in a sense had been sponsored by the united kingdom in ireland tended to just like duplicate what works in england in ireland and so he was trying to find this specifically irish form of education and content to it and he like he's writing to parents and talking about how he's trying to institute like values of valor and stiff-neckedness and um the ability to sacrifice and he he like writes and it's like the most insane thing to read in some ways as someone from 2021 but he writes in the school magazine about this vision dream he had of a student of his um, ascending a gal and facing the hangman and the giant crowd gathered to watch this child be hanged uh, was totally indifferent to the child's reason, the cause for which this child had um, pledged his life and risked this death. And that that's what he was trying to instill in the students was the ability to throw their life away for a good cause. Yeah, that and, stood that stood out to me. Yeah, that that passage. And, um, and like, if you sent that home to parents now, your school would be shut down. Like, and I I admit it's extreme, but anyway, it it just um, reading it and reading of the ambitions of other figures in these movements uh, at that time and even you know years and decades or centuries before 
I don't know, it just instilled in me this kind of necessary passion that I felt had, um, in a way that was, um, the, those passions and higher, more nobler deeds or thoughts were like something I felt, um, had been, uh, were, they were, they were under threat of being dissolved by this kind of, I don't know, negligent form of education I was given, which was like, do whatever you want, be whoever you want to be. If you want to be it, that's probably good. Um, you, you good know, enough. You know, you know what else though? And, and, yeah, go ahead, Michael. Sorry. And, and, and I just wanted to wrap that up by saying, I was, I was talking about this with Andrew Sullivan a little bit uh, recently on his podcast. It like, it's a way of abandoning you because it's it, that form of education. It sounds liberating at first, but it has this, this edge of you have to create all the meaning for yourself and be satisfied with it. And you might be the only one who knows it. There's no objective order against which to measure it. Um, and, and that is a kind of like abyss. I think <laughs> that a lot of people are over existentially um, in their hearts is that they are, they have been told to make their own meaning in life, which is difficult enough when you live in a society <laughs> and then they themselves are the only judge of how well they did. So there's a, it's kind of completely privatizes meaning and makes meaning meaningless, like insensible or illegible. Yeah. So, you know, the, the, that the, I was too struck by that passage, uh, but but the the from my perspective reading it, um, I, I've said this before both in the podcast and to 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 friends. I mean, my my own sense of personal identity has sort of always been fraught because uh, you know even before I, I've been on a green card for a very long time, and I I I ended up sort of putting a putting a. Uh, putting off getting full American citizenship because there was something very comfortable about uh, being here as a foreigner because I could have a kind of distance between myself and the society and could never, I could always sort of keep a comfortable distance of it. I could always sort of oh, yeah. sit on the outside of it. And then whenever I'd go back to, uh, you know, back early on in my childhood, Yugoslavia and then Croatia after that, um, I was always the American, you know, even though I wasn't fully, I'd had a comfortable oh, distance there. So I was always having that sort of thing happen. Um, then, you know, actually, when I finally decided to get my American citizenship, it was actually a very profound thing. I, I did it for ultimately for pragmatic reasons. Initially, it was this idea that, you know, who am I kidding? Uh, I pay taxes here. I, my life is here. I bought a place here. You know, I might as well be able to vote here and, you know, have some say. And, and, and then the actual process of it actually was quite profound. And I don't know, I, I think it, 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 it did change me, but it's, it's striking, I guess what, what I, what's striking to me reading the book and again, reflecting on the current moment is, um, even taking, taking this kind of weird, uh, distancing that I grew up practicing personally is um, I still had a pretty strong sense of identity, which was tied to language because at home we were never allowed to speak English. My parents were actually quite smart about this. They said, you have plenty of English, you know, uh, you'll learn English better than we will. I mean, even my parents speak perfect English. Uh, school's enough for you. At home, if you have a question, you ask in Croatian, how do you say, and then say the English word, and, you know, we'll tell you. So, like, there was no English at home. So I, I kept a very strong uh, connection back to uh, my previous uh, sort of, uh, you know, cultural milieu of whatever, my, my background, my, 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 my cultural heritage uh, through language. Um, and I, th I found it really striking, uh, you know, your own process of, there's that whole passage where you're talking about choosing whether to learn Irish and, you know, the, the Irish language or Gaelic, you know, sort of, uh, not sort of, I guess it's, it's, it's drifting off now after, after the sort of enthusiasm that it would become at some point, the language it's now becoming more and more, um, uh, marginalized. I guess it was, it was, it was striking to hear, to read about you, uh, sort of, embracing this kind of cultural and linguistic identity 
And yet you were still doing it as an American. And it was interesting just even now hearing you talk about the the idea of valor and meaning uh, that being the reason to, uh, you know, accept your heritage and to instill that in your children. But at the same time, you know, there's also that moment when you find yourself with uh, these two other uh, people studying the Irish language and you're at a, at a pub and you start singing the songs together just completely unencumbered. And there's this sort of feeling of community that, that comes over it, even though the three of you are all Americans, basically, sort of yeah, grasping well, onto this meeting, right? It's two, two Americans and one Northern Irishman. Mm, that's um, right. That's right. And uh, yeah, no, the, yeah, there was, I think. And it was sort of, yeah, I remember the passage you're talking about and I... I talked about how it, the, you know, that was at this conference held by a group called Dalti Naguega, which is um, an Irish language kind of association in the United States, kind of promotes the language. And um, it's the same thing that my mother took me to when I was young, um, except now it's like smaller, I think, than it was then. Um, it's way more diverse than it was then. There's like a lot of people who have no connection to Ireland who show up to this now. Um, but they, um, they had trouble getting us kind of somewhat younger people. I mean, I'm not that young anymore, but like the, the people under, let's say 45, I think they were having a little trouble getting us to kind of join in, in the, in sharing songs or like, you know, you know, what you'd call party pieces if you were in Ireland. Mm. Like, it's very typical to get together in Ireland and, you know, among more traditional-leaning people to just, like, pass it around the room and let, like, one person sing their song uh, and then another person theirs. So they were having trouble doing it. And then finally we, like, did it and... um you know, I kind of talk, there's like this kind of funny connection between American Irish plastic patties and Northern Irish mm. Irishmen where like you are kind of asserting a national identity in a different context. Um, and like, there's a kind of, there's a very, there's a commonality in that you're asserting it in a different national context, but there's like a, a deep disjuncture between like, wearing a kiss me i'm irish pin on saint patrick's day in new york versus mm. you know like wearing a hood when you're in the wrong neighborhood um <laughs> in belfast mm. and um but i don't know i just found it really transformative that this this kid who was a bit younger than me and a real practical jokester of a, of a personality um once kind of like the spirit of that night entered him um, and we're singing stupid songs to each other. Um, like I sing him like a really like humorous song about Ulster. Um, and then he kind of got into the spirit and he recited Bobby Sands's poem, rhythm of life, rhythm of time. And, you know, halfway through he's like, reciting it through tears like practically bawling hmm. um his eyes out which is like just unusual to see a 25 year old do um at least now it's just unusual to see a 25 year old summon that level of passion but, but um, so, so it, it it creates i mean i guess the, what i'm getting at here i had a very interesting experience my, my last trip i ended up in skopje in uh, north macedonia and, you know, North Macedonian language is different than Serbo-Croatian. Um, I generally, when I travel there, I, I don't speak Serbo-Croatian because in Yugoslavia, that was sort of like the, you know, the colonial language, even though they're all Slavic languages and you can sort of understand each other. But I ended up in a group um, and we just sort of started talking and, and uh, some of them were older, so they spoke Serbo-Croatian. And it just, as we drank, it sort of, I don't know, became, you know, we're, we're all speaking all different languages, a little bit of English, a little bit of Serbo-Croatian, a little bit of uh, uh, Macedonian language. And I don't know, a kind of like a, a very easy familiarity came out of that evening of people I just met at this conference, basically. Um, and it, it, that's what resonated to me about that passage in your book. And the reason why I think it's so interesting to me as a sort of 
you know, as having my own sort of weird background in all of this, is that, you know, th- there's that cliche, right, that Americans uh, sort of recognize each other and recognize their Americanness best when they're traveling abroad and they meet other Americans. Uh, yeah. But within America, there's a kind of... Um, I wouldn't say loneliness, but there's like a, a different kind of lack of glue. Like within America, it's so vast and so big, and the individualist spirit is so profound and so self, so pervasive. Even leaving aside, I think, all of your correct uh, points about the 90s and what the 90s have done to us and, you know, atomized us further and, and stripped any sense of meaning outside of it. But it's just, it's, it's um, I don't know, what... Looking back at that book and looking back at the introspection, what do you what do you make of American identity? I mean, to a certain extent, because you're you're creating this thing by devoting yourself to uh, a heritage and re-embracing it through uh, you know your father and for wanting to transfer something to your uh, to your kids. But I mean, when you look at America and especially America today, um, is there something that's fundamentally American that's kind of lonely that asks for this kind of stuff apart and beyond of you know where we are today as a society that's sort of leading to these I think cultural excesses as well yeah I I mean America's one of the best like critics of my book asked me like kind of put it in their review like okay now I want to hear what you owe America Hmm. and like what what is America to you um which is like perfectly reasonable question um and I I think, you know, one of my kind of th- theories, I guess, that I've promoted in a lot of pieces, and I think I'm going to return to it soon, about nationalism and national identity is that nationalism um, is like this eruptive force in modern politics, and it erupts under circumstances. Um uh, so, like, a, a project comes into view, like Manifest Destiny, and that kind of summons nationalist passions, or it could be something really evil, like Lebensraum and, mm. uh, you know, the Annihilation of the Jews, and that summons nationalist passions, or, you know, the search for independence and sovereignty, or a home rule parliament, whatever it is. And so... um for me, this like book and this assertion of of the value of Irish national identity, you know, was kind of a protest of what I see as like modern Ireland, and it's kind of textureless. We're just a tax rate out here in the Atlantic mm-hmm. uh, identity, which is you know where they just, they watch media that comes in from London and the United States and, um, have a tax rate and it like, um, you know, it's, it's, it's actually a very double-minded thing because like among themselves, they'll like, they have a really hard time defending Irishness, um, until it comes under pressure from somewhere else outside. Um, and I think for America, we're like living in, you know, even if there's this present sense of like political stress and dislocation, it's still like a fantastically wealthy, secure country that has no serious rival for power or potential oppressor. Um, and so I think that makes things feel looser. Like, I think if, um, you know, if like China was ever a real geostrategic threat to the United States, like we would immediately find the salience of America's political traditions. And also it's like character. It's like freewheeling, inventive, um, improvisational, um, fighting spirit and history would all like suddenly be relevant, uh, in a way that they don't feel, I think right now. Um, and, but there, there is something strange in American culture where because we are this like amalgam people, uh, and we have like these kind of sub national identities that aren't always ethnic, right? Like, like, like my, 
great-great-grandparents were Irish-Americans. My grandparents were, like, Irish-Americans, but, but uh, this is on my mother's side. You know, but it was kind of the Irish and hyphen were fading. Hmm. And then, you know, my mother kind of got way more interested in Ireland after she had a baby with an Irishman. Hmm. Um, but, like, the law of the land and the broader culture is trying to, like, tell me, hey, you're just a white guy. Hmm. Hmm. Um, which P.S. has like no positive identity in America and probably won't ever um, because it's not like itself a real culture. Uh, it's kind of like an abstraction built on on the absence of a couple of cultures. Um, so, I, yeah, there's something weird about American identity. Um, like there's something unique, too, where... Um, like something I find myself saying a lot as we have debated like critical race theory and other things in, in other contexts is that uh, African-Americans, because they were stripped of their language, their religion, their African like tribal or ethnic identities, um, they become in a, in a paradoxical way, the most American Americans, yeah. um, by virtue of their, um, and also that's, that's a, that's a product of their experience, uh, in that their status is so intimately bound up with the development of our state and our, um, you know, these political developments of emancipation and reconstruction jim crow the civil rights movement um you know so they they in a, in a way are like they're way more american than i am like my my, my, my like mother's side came here literally right at the end of the civil war in 1865 hmm. um but yeah like if america comes under pressure um in some serious way like I think we would immediately recapture a stronger sense of shared national identity that people would, you know, share in different ways, right? Like, I, I don't think it's, you know, a lot of people try to problematize the idea of national identity by pointing to things that I think of as just normal, which is that like, well, you could have a blended national identity or overlapping national identities or, you know, like, like I have a blended one, uh, but other people have overlapping ones like Jews in Budapest. They have a Jewish identity. They have a Hungarian identity. Their Hungarian identity is not the same as an ethnic Hungarians, Hungarian identity, but they're in some sense Hungarian as well. Mm. Um, especially if they speak Hungarian. Um, so I, I don't find that, um, I don't find that troubling. It's like, it's natural. Like, and it almost, in a weird way, it almost reflects the things we experience with language itself. Right. That like, um, if you, like you said, you have two languages and I'm sure that that has a, a kind of effect on your, on your self-conception. And even it can even have a, an effect on the way you speak English mm -hmm. or, um, you know, Irish people speak English in a way that, like, it's kind of very funny. They, um, these things that we think of as, like, these little weird regional Irish-isms in, when they speak English, are often, they have some root in the grammar of the Irish language that people in their family might not have spoken for two or three centuries. Mm. On this point of, um, I, you know, Irish identity, I think the way... At one point, you talk about how um, Irish nationalism is an ideological technology for gaining sovereignty. And I think that point's Im important that nationalism requires another, an other. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> in capital, with capital O. And, you know, when, when I've lived abroad, I think I fell in love with America when I was living abroad. I mean, I always liked America and, you know, felt American, even though I had some issues with my own identity as an Arab American, as a Muslim American. It's really when I went abroad and realized that 
in the various places I lived, I always gravitated towards Americans. So maybe I was kind of the bad expat, the kind of stereotype of an expat that I sort of, I gravitate towards my own when I'm abroad. And that was the case, I would say, when I was living in the UK, when I was living in Jordan, when I was living wow. in Egypt, Qatar, in all these countries. Um, and I think part of it too is I realized that despite my Egyptian background, I never felt fully comfortable with Egyptians, that there was always this fundamental gap. So maybe a little, this is a little bit different than Demir, who I think was able to find, because, you know, uh, Demir, I guess you you were bor born and raised in, in, not in the U.S. Correct. and had a kind of closer link. Um, but this, um, but anyway, this is all to say that um, I think that, first of all, immigrants and the children of immigrants are actually the ones who might bring back a kind of American nationalism. And I noticed this in my conversations with white liberals <laughs> whose ancestors have been here for quite some time. They don't, they feel uncomfortable with open love for their own country, even to, and this is not just hyperbole. This is not a sort of, but there have been, especially the last couple of years during the Trump era, where I would express in some sense a deep passion or even uh, admiration or love for America or the American idea. And then a white liberal friend would tell me, whoa, Shadi, I haven't really heard people talk about America in that way for quite some time. And I could get away with it because I was a, a person yeah. of color. <laughs> but if I was a white person and I said those things, they'd look at me with um, with even more suspicion and perhaps ultimate suspicion that, oh my God, like what's going on here? But um, I, just, I think this, I, I think that um, how we revive national, you almost made me an Irish nationalist in reading your book, I Want to Be an Irish Nationalist. Yeah. <laughs> and you say it like very straight up that nationalism is something to be, is something to be intransigent about. Nations are stubborn things. And you say that as a positive thing, that yeah, nations yeah. should be stubborn. National identity should be stubborn. These are things to hold on to in an almost irrational sense. Obviously, well, yeah. we don't think it's irrational, but... Yeah, like, it, it's, <laughs> you know, um, uh, Patrick Pierce, who I was talking about earlier, like, he had this, his nationalism, like, when he theorized about it, and, you know, this is obviously, like, influenced by some of the Germans he was reading at the time. Um, like, I'm sure he was reading Herder. Mm -hmm. You know, he talked about this idea of the spiritual nation, and, you know, he kind of conceived of it as this, like, spiritual tradition, and, and some of his contemporaries kind of had it, looked at it in a different way. And, you know, the idea, I, I think that an idea that's really gotten in my head, even since I wrote the book and is probably even more pronounced now is, um, you know, this, I nations die, like na national traditions are extinguished. And once they are, they're gone forever. And, um, you know, like you can never, like when you read like these ancient nation about these ancient nations in the Bible, like the Hittites, it's like, they're gone forever. You'll never get a revival of Hittite culture. You know, in fact, I mean, they only discovered the evidence of the existence of a Hittite culture outside of the Bible, you know, a little over a century ago. I mean, you could learn the Hittite language at the University of Chicago, but you can't like speak to people with it um there's no uh you know hittite speaking community that you can become an entrepreneur in and provide a life for your family and pass it down like it's it's done it's it's um completely dead and like i kind of presented the image of that in a way uh in, in the book when i was talking about language you know when i was kind of wrestling with this idea of how the Irish language is dying. Um, and like, there's, you know, only a few thousand native speakers who kind of speak it from, from the crib on as their first and primary language. Um, you know, I ran into, uh, a, a native American man who presented, um, he was part of an, a, this was at a veterans meeting, a kind of reunion of a World War II fighting uh, company. 
that my father-in-law was going to and another man from another company um, was part of the Black Leggings Warrior Society. And I kind of asked about the status of the language of his um, nation. And he said, like, eh, some of, it's gone. You know, some of the young people are trying to speak it. And I think, like, there's even been, like, a children's book that's been released. And it's, like, the first published book in that language in um, since the 1920s when linguists first started to try to capture it and, and turn it into a, a written language at all. Um, you know, but he had a CD of the chant and that's all he had of it. Like he, he could, he could play a song, but you know, he couldn't speak it. You couldn't form your identity in that language. Um, and I'm kind of, it's kind of just gotten in my head about like the, the rate at which languages are disappearing on the planet is actually pretty horrifying when you look at it, like about half of all languages spoken now are, you know, the estimate is that they'll be gone in a century. Um, because there's just like this natural human tendency to adopt the lingua franca, because that's how you can advance the, the prospects of your children or yourself. Um, so if you are going to preserve a language in the face of this like powerful human motive and dynamic in society, you, you really have to be intransigent about it. Um, and yeah, and like, that's just a, a microcosm of, of the life of a people itself, which can be totally annihilated if it's not defended and cared for. Well, speaking of, you know, how to defend a national identity and and how to kind of address the crisis of of meaning the lack of meaning specifically um and i think a lot of your your work in national review over the past couple of years i think one thing you've really done a great job of emphasizing is the fact that liberals don't fully grasp how dominant they are in the culture mm. and how much of a threat conservatives perceive from this i mean and then liberals will say, well, conservatives control um, the Supreme Court, all these states, governorship, so on and so forth, um, almost as if they long for political power without realizing that they have something that is in some way more important, more powerful and more lasting, which is a hold on American culture in elite institutions and in mainstream institutions and that makes them in some fundamental sense unable to understand the predicament and the sense of being under siege that many conservatives, I think even including yourself, feel. I think it's fair to say that you've been able to convey this in your own work, that you feel this, you feel this too. Um, and I guess this can maybe bring us to where we are in the current national debate, um, which is the diagnosis that you and other previous guests have about the failures of liberal culture, I think, are very well taken. And for the most part, Demir and I agree. So we had, um, probably, as you know, um, Sorab Amari, Ross Douthat, so on and so forth, which has led people to make jokes about the fact that we have a long Catholic streak in our <laughs> in our recent guests and, you know, what this might mean for the future of the podcast or even for the future of Shadi's. Of Shadi, of <laughs> but um, so but let me push you on. I mean, this isn't the most important thing because, you know, you're a, you're a writer, you're analyzing, you're observing, you don't necessarily have the solution. But um, it seems to me that there isn't really a solution. Um, and that's part of what makes this current moment, I think, so frustrating for not just conservatives, but also for someone like me who is on, people can debate where I am on the spectrum. We don't have to get into that right now. But for someone who self-identifies as being, in some sense, left on the left side of the spectrum, but I'm also heterodox and I'm also very concerned about where the culture is going um, because I do respect religion and I do respect tradition. Um, and I think that's that comes from my Muslim, you know, the fact that I grew up Muslim, I am Muslim, and I think that I've been able to bring that to my political analysis. But anyway, this is all to say, where do I mean, we're stuck, basically, is what I'm, I guess what I am saying, 
we're stuck. Um, you mean stuck with each other or just like stuck as a culture, like in a, in a room? I don't know. I mean, what can be done? It doesn't seem like there's an obvious way to address the crisis of meaning that you and others highlight, I think, so eloquently. And I, I think mean, this is there's, all... There's, yeah. there's ways to do it. I mean, come on, dude. Think, think harder. <laughs> okay, tell me. Tell, tell us. I mean, several centuries of clarifying uh, warlordism would like immediately <laughs> throw us back upon the most primal meanings imaginable. Um, so just destroy our civilization and start over again. I mean, it's just, that's, we could do, we could do it. We yeah. have it in our hands. Yeah. Yeah. War with China would essentially war with serve China, this purpose. Or just like descending into just warring over nonsense. I don't, I, I mean, I don't know. Um, it's, I don't think it's a problem that, that gets solved it's sort of like something that will manage until the situ until it changes in some other way right like it's just we have to cope with it um you know i think um in a weird way like uh, progressives and liberals i think are there's a topsy-turvy quality to it all which is that um i do think progressives in some ways are uncomfortable with power and th and that's maybe why they wield it so strangely um <laughs> you know what i mean like it, it, it's I, th I think matt, matt iglesias has been on this riff a little bit lately that like it was better when urbanites were kind of these gentle somewhat befuddled conservatives <laughs> and like you know uh working class people with um big hearts and hard hands were li were the liberals mm -hmm. um i don't know if we can get back to that um but i don't know i don't know how to so solve the sense of siege um you know i think obviously like the united states has gone through like tremendous like norm cascade and we're still absorbing what social media means and does and how that it seems to quicken the ability of progressives to converge on an answer that they view as like the right one uh, among themselves and therefore the one that's going to be adopted by the institutions that they control and dominate. But, you know, that's going to have effects that people don't like, right? Like, and I think, you know, we're seeing that in the backlash to critical race theory. That's, you know, a popular backlash to it. Or we're, you know, we're going to see it in these court cases where, you know, you're you're beating up on some like random florist or whatever, the, like who's probably the only florist in your city that has a religious scruple uh, that forbids them in their conscience to, you know, make money by selling their floral arrangements to a same-sex wedding or something like that i like you know i think that'll be seen as mean-spirited to just go after people like that and that what well, is it is seen that way already right i mean that I is already seen, why I there's it's seen but like that way by us maybe but you know i don't think i don't think people i don't think progressives have internalized how like thoroughly and quickly they're triumphing uh and I think um, they have a really, like I said, they have a really hard time imagining themselves as really possessing power. And so they have a really underdeveloped sense of how to wield it carefully and responsibly. Uh, and if they don't develop that sense quickly, they're going to lose it, right? Like, you know, um, you know, yeah, I, like it, there, there was kind of a time in the United States in the Gilded Age where... Um, you had all of these sudden and fantastic fortunes were were built in the matter of like two decades and um the amount of wealth in in the hands of just you know the the top five or six families in the united states was just utterly like astonishing it dwarfed the size of the federal government itself and um if that class of people didn't adapt as they did and just give a huge amount of it away and set up these huge foundations and charities and build libraries across the whole country, 
you know, they, they had to learn how to handle that much wealth and power gently, quickly, responsibly, uh, or else they were going to be overthrown by like a socialist revolution in the United States. Like they, they, they almost more than anyone headed it off by creating this ethic, um, which we later called like this waspish noblesse oblige. Um, so progressives have to figure that out. Like they have to figure out how to view the evangelical as in a subordinate position to the progressive. And I think that's hard because like for a lot of them, the, a lot of progressives probably grew up in an evangelical home with like a jerk of a parent, you know? So maybe that's going to be difficult for them to figure out, but and it's the natural I order of things that they will figure out how to hold this power responsibly or they will lose it eventually. I think what's I think worrying and dangerous is when people are are rulers, but they still act as if they're in the opposition. And I think this is an unfortunate um, reality with both parties that even when Republicans are in power, yeah. they act like they're in opposition. And now um, progressives, Democrats are in power, but they still have this weird way, as as you sort of point to. Of, of not realizing how much power they wield. And for someone, it might just be that as someone who studies religion and culture and sees that as the prime mover, I, I become more aware of the overwhelming cultural dominance of liberals. And to me, it is really quite overwhelming. That is not hyperbole. Let me just jump in, though. What's what's interesting about that, just what you said, Shadi, I was talking to someone else about this just the other day. It's, 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 it is very American, though. And it's, it's this very American idea that the government, like, that there's always something out there oppressing you, right? And so when you're out of power, you're always claiming to be the outsider and, and, and like, a not, like, in, 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 a, in a consistent sort of way. So it's like if the other guy's in power, like, oh my God, they're going to totally totalize you. And it's both sides play that game in different ways, ultimately use different levers and different sort of methods to make the case. But that seems to be like a, a pretty broad, uh, Amer a, a broad facet of American democracy in particular. So, so one thing I want to jump in and say that like, is kind of interesting, right? So like Tucker Carlson, she made this so easy to talk about uh, by saying, he thinks like we should put cameras on public school teachers <laughs> to make sure that they don't <laughs> teach uh, things he doesn't like. Like that gets at something that's interesting about like the culture war and conflict, which is that um, like fundamentally what we don't trust is the other side's character and intentions, right? So it's like you put body cams on police because, uh, you know, the criminal justice reform movement, the social justice movement, you know, fundamentally views the class of people who become police as ungovernable. Like you can't just pass rules and expect them to enforce them and live up to them. Uh, you have to like actually watch them like yourself. You have to actually make their actions more visible uh, so that they're not governing themselves in any real way. And then like Tucker says the same thing about teachers, which is like the same idea from the other side, which mm -hmm. is like, oh, we don't trust this other public sector union group um, because we know they're overwhelmingly progressive in their political affiliation. So we, we literally can't trust them if we set rules in our school board meetings or at the state level in the legislature so we'll just like surveil them <laughs> um that's that's a that's not a comfortable spot for the for the country to be in no uh, i hope we're not there long um but it speaks to the depth of our conflict and, and conviction and like in the weird way that like um You know, uh, Eric Kaufman wrote this piece for National Review saying, like, we should pass, like, civil rights protections for political groups like conservatives to protect their interests from from this domination that Shadi talks about. I don't know about that as a solution, but I do know it's a bad sign, like, because that sort of stuff, like, when you start talking about parity of esteem, like, that's stuff like you get in Northern Ireland, where you actually have people who have completely separate national identities trying to manage living together. Um, 
And there's this like kind of, I you know, I don't know how in, ingrained it is in America to, to feel this way, but there really is like, um, you know, when one side captures the presidency, the other side starts like vainly wishing for secession or, or some kind of amicable divorce. Or a military um, coup. Or military coup or what, you know, whatever. But like, you know, I remember all that stuff, like in 2004, when all the Jesus land maps went out mm-hmm. um, across the world and people started talking about like Vermont secession and then Obama won and it was like, oh, let's talk about Texas secession. <laughs> <laughs> you know. Lots more where that came from, even more provocative, but for members only. Go to wisdomofcrowds.live slash subscribe to become a member today. We hope to see you in the bonus episode.